Hello, this is Daphne, and I will be reading the Cape Cod Times today uh, for Thursday, December the 7th. Good to be back. We begin with the weather. Today, high of 35, cold with partial sunshine. Tonight, low of 27, mostly clear. Tomorrow, Friday, high of 43, low of 36, not as cold with times of sun and clouds. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, high of 51, low of 46. Sunday, winds becoming strong, afternoon rain, high of 56, low of 50. And Monday, breezy, a shower in the morning, partly sunny, high of 53, low of 33. And for those of us who are keeping track, uh, the sun rose this morning at 6.54. It will set at 4.11, which gives us nine hours and 17 minutes of daylight. And on to the Massachusetts Lottery. For the numbers game, midday drawing from yesterday, December the 6th, numbers are 2-8. Five zero, again midday drawing the numbers game, two eight five zero, and the evening drawing, seven three nine nine, again the evening drawing for the numbers game, seven three nine nine, for mass cash again drawn yesterday December the sixth the numbers are eleven. 16, 21, 28, 32. Again, mass cash, 11, 16, 21, 28, 32. For Powerball, drawn Wednesday, December the 6th, the numbers are 2, 12, 37, 56, 65, and the Powerball is 21. Again, the numbers for Powerball, 2, 12, 37, 56, 65, and the Powerball is 21. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, December the 5th, the numbers are 18, 35, 40, 64, 67, and the Mega Ball is 18. Again, Mega Millions, drawn Tuesday, December the 5th. The numbers are 18, 35, 40, 64, 67, and the Mega Ball is 18. For Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, December the 6th, the numbers are 2, 14, 23, 29, 44, excuse me, let me begin that again. Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, December the 6th. The numbers are 2, 14, 23, 39, 42, 44. And the screen I'm looking for does not have the um, Mega Bucks extra number. So I apologize about that. Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, December the 6th. The numbers are 2, 14, 23, 39, 42, 44. And finally, Lucky for Life, drawn Wednesday, December the 6th. The numbers are 4, 9, 15, 25, 40, and the lucky ball is 11. Again, Lucky for Life, 4, 9, 15, 25, 40, with the lucky ball of 11. 11. And on with the news for the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, December the 7th. The front page head story is entitled, Overtime, One by One, They Were Getting It. And this is reported by Rachel Devaney. During one of the first meetings of the Nauset Interfaith Association's Martin Luther King Action Team's Police Task Force, Jean Morrison told the group that she was overcome with fear when she was pulled over in 2018 on Route 28 by a Yarmouth police officer. The officer was ahead of her in traffic, she said, and pulled to the right of the road. 
Morrison, who identifies as black, was dressed in a hoodie and a ball cap at the time. As Morrison's vehicle slowly passed the officer, the, off the police car pulled behind her in traffic. Its lights were flashing. Morrison said she asked the officer why she was being pulled over. He seemed surprised to see Morrison, 64, and her mother, Mary Morrison, 91, in the car, she said. He didn't answer me. Instead, he said, is this your car? I said, yes, of course it's my car. You have my license and registration, said Morrison. That fear turned to anger when I realized I was just being harassed. Morrison didn't receive a citation that day, she said, but the officer became increasingly defensive when she continued to ask him why she was pulled over. Quote, That's why we get so mad when something bad happens between a police officer and a person of color, said Morrison. We have so many experiences of our own being treated badly by police. Morrison said she decided to help launch the police task force, a concept which was initiated in 2020 by police chiefs in, lo in several lower Cape towns. During monthly task force meetings, she said, community members who identify as people of color have shared similar experiences. The group's mission, said Wes Williams, co-convener of the MLK Action Team, is to talk and learn from one another and specifically focus on the experiences of black, indigenous, and people of color. Quote, George Floyd's murder is what brought us together, and the focus of the conversations have been on race and community policing, said Williams. The chiefs approached the MLK action team after Floyd's death to see if they could talk with them about the negative perceptions of the police across the nation and on Cape Cod. Through the MLK action team, community members participated in those conversations, and the police task force was initiated. The police task force will be honored with the Rosenthal Community Champion Award on December 11th during the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission's 2023 International Human Rights Day celebration. The police task force is being recognized, quote, for their dedicated efforts to enhance the relationship between the police and the communities they serve, according to the Human Rights Advisory Commission's website. For Leslie Dominguez-Santos, Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission Coordinator, members of the task force have not only been brave enough to share their vulnerabilities with each other, they've also held difficult conversations that, over time, have impacted police policies and procedures on the Lower Cape. The Rosenthal Community Champion Award focuses on honoring public servants who are working toward the greater good, said Dominguez Santos. Named after Irving Leopold Rosenthal, the award is given to individuals in the public sector who foster human rights concepts and ideals. The work of the police task force is striking, said Dominguez Santos, because police chiefs within the task force have been so open to communication and community members have taken the time to hold conversations about their racial experiences and concerns around community policing. The Human Rights Commission will recognize the police task force, including communion, community members Jeff Spalter, chair of the police task force, Morrison, who is also chair of the Barnstable Human Rights Advisory Commission, Becky Alden, Tia Cross, Panchetta Peterson, David Purdy, Deborah Ullman, and Williams. The award will also recognize Michael Anderson, chief of the Chatham Police Department, Heath Eldridge, chief of the Brewster Police Department, Scott McDonald, chief of the Orleans Police Department, and David Guilmet, chief of the Harwich Police Department, and former police, Chatham Police Chief Mark Paulina. Quote, they are coming up with concrete suggestions policies, and procedures, said Dominguez Santos. They are doing the work, and it's creating real, impactful, and lasting change in our community, close quote. The first thing the group did at the first meeting, said Spalter, was a team-building exercise. 
Everyone went around the room and shared their first experience with racism or their first experience interacting with a person of color. Police chiefs were impressed by the honesty, said Spalter. One of the women in the group asked police why police officers are so rude, he said. It took the air out of the room, he said. Quote, she said, this is how you make me feel, close quote. Over the years, the police task force has touched upon issues like over-policing, the police-involved deaths of unarmed people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tyree Nichols, and Tamir Rice. The group also talked about the history surrounding the creation of the police and struggles between police and black, indigenous, and people of color, Morrison said. Quote, we were spilling our guts on how we feel as people in our skin, how we feel interacting with white society, she said. We shared our trauma. At first, police chiefs were defensive, mad, and upset, she said. Quote, and we were mad that they didn't understand, close quote. Eldridge of Brewster Police remembers that initially community members and police, quote, didn't see eye to eye. Eventually, police chiefs saw the meetings as an opportunity to build bridges between their departments and underrepresented communities, he said. Quote, it was great for me to have trusted conversations with folks that could provide a different lens than what my life experience was, he said. We realized what police looked like in their view and what they wanted it to look like. Quote, over time, one by one, they were getting it, said Morrison. Before the police task force, Eldridge said the Brewster Police Department had a 10-year relationship with the Nauset Interfaith Association's Martin Luther King Action Team to help the community understand the police department's role in surrounding immigration law. Quote, we wanted to get the message out there that local police aren't here to enforce immigration law, he said. There were a lot of, of misconceptions. In the wake of Floyd's murder, said Eldridge, other departments wanted to try to do the same and work again with the MLK action team. Quote, At the end of the day, we are working together to create better relationships between police departments and the people we serve, he said. Close quote. Police task force meetings also gave the police chiefs a chance to share their perspective of what it's like to be a police officer and why they have developed certain operating procedures and policies. The conversations and social interactions developed an atmosphere of trust, partnership, and empathy, said Morrison. For Eldridge, the police task force is a component of real community policing. Community policing is a philosophy, he said, that extends to every contact police have with members of the public. The community is the police, and the police are the community, he said. Quote, we are members of the community, too, he said. We take our uniform off at the end of the day. We're just paid to do a job that everyone should be a part of, close quote. When Morrison shared her interaction with police in Yarmouth with the group, Eldridge said she was surprised that he was upset about being asked if the vehicle she was driving was her, her car. Quote, it's a routine question. We ask everybody that, said Eldridge. But Morrison's perspective gave him pause. Eldridge realized, he said, that it was unnecessary to ask that specific routine question. Instead, Brewster police officers are now trained to collect a person's driver's license and compare it to the vehicle's license plate information. Quote, knowing the question can be perceived that way allows me to make a shift, he said. The police task force also analyzed an incident, incident where Brewster police officers were called by a town resident because a person of color was driving through their neighborhood, said Morrison. The caller felt the person looked suspicious. It turned out the man was visiting his girlfriend's parents and he was driving around trying to find a house. The girlfriend's father was outraged and he filed a complaint with police, said Morrison. During the meeting, Morrison said police officers agreed that the call was a waste of police time and money. Through this instance and others, 
Morrison said police decided to come up with different ways to teach their officers how to perceive and define suspicious people. Quote, now that's a real change, said Morrison. While the police task force has plans to hold conversations with the Provincetown Police Department and the Wellfleet Police Department, Spalter said the group is considering splinter groups that can meet with police departments in other areas of the Cape. The group is also hoping to get young people involved, he said. Quote, the younger generation will be interacting with police for the next 50 years, he said. We want to build positivity between police and younger people, close quote. For Morrison, it's important to continue to build the police task force and address racial and other biases and reduce the tension between police and people of color to avoid potential danger or harm. Quote, we've developed a model by having different conversations during a time when the country is in turmoil, she said. And that's the beauty of having authentic conversations in a safe space. Things can change. A second article from the front page of the Cape Cod Times is entitled, Erdogan Sends Warning to Netanyahu, reported by John Bacon for USA Today. Israel will pay a heavy price if it expands its war on Hamas to assassinate militant militant leaders living in Turkey or elsewhere outside the Gaza Strip, Turkish President Erdogan says. Hamas leaders have routinely sought safe havens in Qatar, Lebanon, Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Israel has generally refrained from pursuing them to avoid diplomatic upheaval. But since the murderous October the 7th foray into Israel that killed 1,200 people, Israel has warned that no place will be safe for Hamas leaders. Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently said he instructed Israeli spy agency Mossad to act against the heads of Hamas wherever they are. Erdogan warned that Israel would find Turkish intelligence and security agencies a powerful adversary. Quote, if they dare to take such a step against Turkey and Turkish people, they will be doomed to pay a price which they cannot recover from, Erdogan told Turkey's Anadolu news agency on Tuesday. Quote, those who attempt such a thing should not forget that the consequences can be extremely serious, close quote. The Gaza Health Ministry said the Palestinian death toll has surpassed 16,200, and more than 42,000 people have been wounded. The ministry said 70% of the dead were women and children. Israel has not disputed the numbers, but says it has killed more than 5,000 militants and accuses Hamas of using civilians as human shields. The Israeli military said it regretted an incident involving a strike on a Lebanese army base that killed one soldier and wounded several others. Speeding ambulances rushing to overcrowded hospitals have been a frequent sight in Khan Yunus as the intensified embarment by Israeli forces and the incursion of their ground troops upended life in Gaza's southern half. Witnesses said a school sheltering hundreds of displaced people was struck on Tuesday, sending scores of Palestinian casualties to nearby Nasser Hospital, where the wounded were laid on a bloody floor. Quote, what's happening here is unimaginable, said Hamza al-Bursh, who lives near the school. Quote, they strike indiscriminately, close quote. Israel says it has been trying to direct civilians to safer zones, but many are unable to reach them, don't get the information, or find those areas under attack, too. At least 34 people were killed, including at least six children, when an airstrike destroyed a house where dozens of displaced people were seeking refuge in the central Gaza town of Deir al-Bala, just north of Yunis, the Associated Press reported. Video showed men pulling the limp body of a car from under a slab next to a burning car. 
The United Nations says Tuesday that there is limited humanitarian aid being delivered to Gaza. Only the Rafah region in southern Gaza is receiving aid because of intense hostilities, and the fighting has made it impossible to distribute essentials like food, water, and medicine to most people in the area. Quote, Shelters have no capacity, the health system is on its knees, and there is a lack of clean drinking water, no proper sanitation, and poor nutrition, said Lynn Hastings, the UN humanitarian coordinator in the Palestinian territories. Fuel and medical supplies have reached critically low levels at Al-Aska Hospital in the central Gaza Strip due to road closures despite the number the hundreds of patients needing emergency care due to the Israeli bombardment, Doctors Without Borders warned. The hospital has been receiving, on average, 150 to 200 war-wounded patients daily. Without electricity, ventilators would cease to function, blood donations would have to stop, the sterilization of surgical instruments would be impossible, the group said. Almost 1.9 million people, or 85% of the Gaza Strip population, have been forced from their homes since the war began two months ago, and about 1.2 million of them are living in UN-provided shelters, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees said. The death toll of UNRWA workers has climbed to 130. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volkel Turk, once again urged a ceasefire, citing the utter deepening horror in Gaza. The U.S. Agency for International Development said Tuesday that the United States has pledged an additional $21 million in humanitarian assistance for Gaza to help establish a field hospital. White House Principal Deputy Secretary Olivia Dalton said the United States has also organized a second aid flight into Gaza with 36,000 pounds of food and medical supplies. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on Wednesday discussed recent U.S. diplomatic efforts to bring an end to the war. Blinken reiterated the imperative of all parties working to prevent the conflict from spreading, the State Department said in a statement. Front and center was a discussion of the recent Houthi attacks against commercial ships in the Red Sea. Blinken said the attacks posed unacceptable threat to maritime security and international law, quote, that all nations have an obligation to uphold, close quote. The two sides are mostly in agreement on Gaza, with both governments supporting a two-state solution. President Xi Jinping has repeatedly stressed the need for an immediate ceasefire, ensuring that the humanitarian corridors are safe and unimpeded, and preventing an expansion of the conflict. Freed Israeli hostage Mia Limburg, who took her dog with her when she was seized by Hamas militants on October 7th, said Bella was a huge help while in captivity. Limburg, 17, was released along with her mother a week ago. She says in a video posted on social media Wednesday that she believes her captors didn't take Bella away because the puppy was quiet and went unnoticed. It was quite a journey for both of us, Leimberg said. Overall, she was a huge help to me. She kept me busy. She was moral support. Also on the front page of the Cape Cod Times... GOP hopefuls not focusing on Trump. Debate debate gives candidates opportunity to stand out, reported by David Jackson for the USA Today. The Republican presidential race really should be a referendum on Donald Trump, but it isn't always, thanks to the former president's vice-like grip on GOP voters. As they prepared for Wednesday night's debate in Alabama, Challengers, including Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, seemed reluctant to make the GOP primary about Trump, perhaps wary of alienating the legions of Republican voters who have backed him in the past. The Republican candidate who has been most critical of Trump, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, hasn't been able to gain much much traction, 
polling below 4% in Iowa, while holding at third place in New Hampshire. Christie and other anti-Trump Republicans say the party has no choice but to focus on the former president, given his weakness with independent voters and the unprecedented fact that he is facing as many as four criminal trials in the coming year. Quote, if Trump is our nominee, we will not only lose the presidency again, but we will lose both houses of Congress and we will lose races up and down the ticket, Christie told News Nation in an interview. While the non-Trump candidates got another chance to discuss the forerunner, frontrunner or not, during Wednesday's debate in Tuscaloosa, Trump planned to host a fundraiser in Florida skipping the Alabama debate just as he did three previous showdowns. Pollsters and political analysts said they didn't expect the Trump issue to surface much during the debate because there's little or no gain in it for the challengers. Most of Trump's rivals are leery of attacking the GOP's undisputed leader, fearing a backlash from grassroots Republican voters, they said. So far, if anything... Attacks on Trump seem to have strengthened him politically. Many Republicans have rallied around him, regardless of whether the attacks have come from GOP rivals, President Joe Biden and the Democrats, or prosecutors and grand juries that have charged him with felony crimes. Trump faces charges, trials, excuse me, in Washington, D.C. and Georgia on charges of trying to steal the 2020 election. He was indicted in New York over hush money payments to an adult film actress and in Florida on allegations of mishandling classified documents. Trump has pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. Trump holds leads of more than 45 percentage points in national polls compiled by the Real Clear Politics website. Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, has promoted herself as the leader of a, quote, new generation, an implicit contrast to the 81-year-old President Joe Biden and the 77-year-old Trump. She also called for moral clarity, another apparent reference to Trump. Trump's former ambassador to the U.N., Haley, has also pointed to her former boss's sketchy electoral record and that he has twice lost the national popular vote. DeSantis, meanwhile, has spent more time attacking Haley than Trump, as each candidate seeks to become the major alternative to the frontrunner. DeSantis has faulted Trump for falling short on a variety of promises, from finishing the U.S.-Mexico border wall to the increase in federal spending during the Trump presidency. Yet, on NBC's Meet the Press, DeSantis was reluctant to criticize Trump for using the word vermin to describe his political opponents. Christie has criticized Haley and DeSantis for not being more aggressive with Trump, a candidate who could find himself sentenced to prison before winning the GOP nomination. Early on, the GOP race was more of a Trump referendum because many GOP voters questioned whether he could win a general election, given all his baggage, said pollster Gunnar Raymer. Quote, electability was the most salient issue with Republican primary voters, said Raymer, political director for an anti-Trump organization called the Republican Accountability Project. Trump announced his candidacy unusually early, in November 2022, right after disappointing performances by Republicans in that year's congressional and state elections. Trump was also under various investigations, including those involving the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. This year has brought a series of indictments in four separate cases against Trump, and his poll numbers steadily rose, Raymer said. It appears that rising numbers of Republicans agreed with Trump's claims he is being targeted by the legal system for political reasons. Some current polls show Trump leading Biden. So, if anything, the electability issue now favor, favors the former president. Quote, for a variety of reasons, the idea of a referendum on Trump has diminished, Raymer said. 
Whether it remains this way is unknowable. Trump is the first ex-president to actively campaign for the White House again since Grover Cleveland in 1892. He is the first major presidential candidate ever to face criminal trials and possible prison time. It's a wholly unique set of circumstances that candidates, analysts, and vo voters are finding hard to navigate. Quote, I don't know how to predict anything in this election at this point, said Republican political consultant Liz Meyer. There's so many things going on that are radically different than anything we've ever seen before. We're at the middle of our broadcast, so it is time for our obituaries. Today we have three, and we begin with Marianne Hershey. Marianne Hersey, 76, of South Dennis, Mass., passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by her beloved family, on December the 5th, 2023, after a courageous battle with cancer. Marianne was born July 28, 1947, to John and Thelma Murphy. She spent her childhood in Marshfield and Medford, Mass. She completed a Catholic education with graduation from North Cambridge Catholic in 1965. Marianne moved to Cape Cod in 1972 and worked for Cape Cod Cooperative Bank, DM Ward Homes, Reef Realty, and then a long career with the town of Dennis, retiring from the Department of Natural Resources. Retirement was hardly that. Her days were filled with coffee dates with Janet, Jean, Patty, and Paula, searching for bargains at estate and yard sales with Jean and Sue, afternoons on the golf course with the Dennis's erstwhile but most important Dennis's erstwhile, but most importantly filled with time doing things with her extended family. She cherished her time watching her 14 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren grow and develop. She was r always running to get someone off the bus, shuttle one from one activity to another, or busy, busy dog-sitting for her many grand-dogs. Marianne was one of the most positive people on the planet, never had a bad word to say about anyone, was the biggest cheerleader, and always encouraged everyone to find what makes you happy and do your best. She loved the color pink, fresh-cut flowers, a good cup of coffee with a jelly donut, and wine with cheese and crackers. Her sacred space was Madrid, Phillips, and Beaver Pond, Maine. Marianne is predeceased by her mother, Thelma Murphy, her father, John Murphy, brother, Edward Murphy, and sister, Eleanor Murphy. She is survived by her loving husband, Robert Hersey, her younger brother, Jack Murphy, daughter, Lisa Crary, and husband, David, son, Joe Gaska, and wife, Catherine, stepdaughter, Luann Griffin, and husband, David, stepson, Michael Hersey, and wife, Carrie, and stepson, Matthew Hersey. She was an amazing Nana to her 14 grandchildren, Nathan, wife, Caitlin, Tyler, wife, Alana, Ryan, Celia, Peniman, Michaela, Robert, David, wife, Brittany, Jocelyn, husband, David, Ab Daniel, Abigail, Elizabeth, Ella, Jacob, and Kelsey. She was a loving Gigi to her five great-grandchildren, Olivia, Owen, Layden, Jackson, and Evelyn. Please join Mar Marianne's family to celebrate her life on Friday, December 8th, 2023, for a visitation from 12 to 3 p.m. with a service at 2 p.m. at Hallett Funeral Home, 273 Station Avenue, South Yarmouth, Mass. Internment to follow at Oak Ridge Cemetery, Route 134, South Dennis, Mass. We kindly wear that you wear a little pink to give Mary Ann an extra smile. Our second obituary is for Joanne S. Curley. It is with heavy heart and profound sadness that we announce the passing of Joanne S. Curley of Yarmouthport, Massachusetts, after a brief illness at the age of 92. She left this world peacefully on December the 5th, 2023. Born on April 25, 1931, in Berkeley, California, as an only child of Alfred F. 
Alfred M. Sands, and Joanna C. McCarthy. At the age of 14, she moved to Dorchester, Mass., to live with her Uncle Tom McCarthy to care for her ailing mother. Joanne embarked on a successful career in modeling, where she later met the love of her life, Lieutenant John F. Curley. Together, they built a strong and nurturing foundation for their six beautiful children. Her unwavering commitment to her family was unmatched. Joanne was an endless source of love, guidance, and strength. She always ensured that her family felt supported and cherished. Joanne flawlessly balanced working in the family publishing company, Curly Publishing, and managing a busy household. Her adventurous spirit included skiing, parasailing, hot air ballooning over the Serengeti, diving in the BVIs, horseback riding, and the symphony she so enjoyed. As the hostess with the mostess, Joanne loved to entertain, bake, and spend time with her girlfriends. Her beloved clubs included gardening, questers, book group, and St. Pius, Pius X Ladies Guild. Her greatest joy in life was being with her family, whether it was poolside or on the ski slopes. Joanne was predeceased by her husband, John F. Curley Sr., and her son, John F. Curley Jr. She leaves behind his spouse, Elaine M. Curley, Susan E. Davenport and husband, DeWitt P. Davenport, Robert M. Curley, Thomas J. Curley, Mary E. Grape and husband, Thomas H. Grape, and Joanne C. Lake, husband, Stephen G. Lake, ten wonderful grandchildren and six great-grandchildren, and many, many friends. The viewing hours will be held on December 11, 2023, from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. at Hallett's Funeral Home, 273 Station Avenue, South Yarmouth, followed by a service at St. Pius X's at 11 a.m. on Station Avenue, South Yarmouth. Burial to follow at Woodside Cemetery, Yarmouthport. In lieu of flowers, the family kindly requests cash. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. We ask that donations be made in the memory of Joanne S. Curley to Cape Cod Healthcare's Davenport Muger Cancer Center at P.O. Box 370, Hyannis, Massachusetts, 02601. Our third and final obituary today is for Joseph William Cook. Joseph William Cook, 77, of Orleans, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully on November 29th, surrounded by loved ones. Joe was born on February 4, 1946, to Margaret and Leo Cook of Milton, Mass. The eldest of ten siblings, Joe spent his childhood in Milton and in 1969 relocated to Truro, where he married and started his family. Joe sailed as a merchant mariner and later retired from Truro Central School. After retirement, Joe worked for the National Seashore. Joe enjoyed spending time with his children and grandchildren. He also dearly loved being at Pamet Harbor. Many of his fondest memories were of his time on the water, lobstering, and as a mariner. Joe is survived by his children, Priscilla Cook of Wellfleet, Nathaniel Cook of Montague, and Michael Cook of Truro. His longtime companion, Sarah Hutchings of Orleans, and his former wife, Maureen Rich of Rockport. He is also survived by his grandchildren, Zoe Ryder O'Malley of Wellfleet, Cassidy Cook of Harwich, Eben Ryder O'Malley of Wellfleet, Isabel Cook of Orleans, and Cora Cook of Truro. Other surviving family include siblings George Cook of Braintree, Lewis Cook of Rockland, Lorraine Ahern of Rockland, Fred Cook of Milton, Mary Barbone of Marshfield, David Cook of Quincy, and John Cook of Madison, New Hampshire, as well as several nieces and nephews. Joseph was predeceased by his parents, Margaret and Leo, as well as his sister Sandra Doherty of Plymouth and brother Leo Cook Jr. of Milton. Services will be announced at a later date. 
in lieu of flowers, donations can be made in Joseph's name to the Massachusetts Organ Transplant Fund. New England Donor or New England Donor Services, attention Caitlin Bernabucci, 61st Avenue, Waltham, Massachusetts, 02461. And that name, Caitlin Bernabucci, is spelled B-E-R-N-A-B-U-C-C-I. Again, at 61st Avenue, Waltham, Massachusetts, 02451. And back to the news. For Cape and Islands News, <clears throat> this article is entitled, Cape Cod State Make Progress to Net Zero Goal, But More Effort Needed, reported by Heather McCarran. When it comes to tackling the subject of climate change, Massachusetts is an achieving student, but its assignment to zero out greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 is an honors-level challenge with difficult questions to solve before it can make the grade. That's the message of the state's first-ever climate report card, which the Healy-Driscoll administration released on December the 1st, a comprehensive evaluation of progress Massachusetts is making on emissions reduction and its ultimate goal to ensure communities are protected from the effects of climate change. According to State Climate Chief Melissa Hoffner, head of the Massachusetts Office of Climate Innovation and Resilience, the report card evaluates the state's efforts in several areas, including environmental justice, transportation, buildings, power, natural and working lands, and climate resilience efforts. Overall, the report finds, Massachusetts has made significant process, progress since adopting the Global Warming Solutions Act in 2008 and the Roadmap for Massachusetts Climate Policy in 2021, both of which made the Commonwealth a trailblazer in pursuing clean energy, quote, but a strong policy response to existing and emerging challenges will be needed to make meet the state's ambitious 2030 targets, close quote. The Massachusetts Clean Energy and Climate Plan for 2050 calls for significant emission reductions between 2025 and 2030. Quote, burning fossil fuels is responsible for about three-quarters of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. To avoid more dangerous levels of warming, we must repeat, rapidly reduce reliance on fossil fuels for heating homes, schools and businesses, powering electric generation and fueling vehicles, and protect, protect our natural and working lands that help draw down and store carbon, Hoffner said in a statement about the climate report card. Hoffner said the report card Port card, quote, shows us exactly what we need to do, and it's a call to action, close quote. The quote continues, we need to weatherize our homes and schools and businesses, switch to clean heat, use cleaner appliances, create better, more affordable ways for people to get around without a car if they choose, and for those who drive, get more people into new or used EVs when they are in the market for a new car, she said. A key is expanding clean energy sources from wind to solar, geothermal, and hydropower. The chief challenges to meeting their goals are inflation, supply chain issues, and workforce shortages. Just as Massachusetts is at the forefront in the nation of meeting the challenges of climate change, Cape Cod is at the forefront in the state. Here, work is well underway to adapt through projects such as the Herring Herring River Tidal Restoration, the regional low-lying roads effort led by the Cape Cod Commission, and an increasing number of former cranberry bog conversions back to the natural wetlands, such as the one planned in Marston Mills by the Barnstable Clean Water Coalition. Andrew Gottlieb, Executive Director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, said in many respects the state and the Cape Cod region are attempting, quote, an uncommonly wide metamorphosis to reach climate-related benchmarks, and it's hard but necessary. The climate report card, he said, paints a good picture of where the state is at and where it needs to go.
quote, a lot of it has implications and meaning to Cape Cod, he said on Monday. One aspect of the report that stood out to him, he said, was the portion addressing natural and working lands, quote, particularly the finding that open spaces are responsible for re absorbing more carbon than they admit, and their protection is an important aspect of meeting overall strategy, close quote. Protecting Cape Cod's undeveloped acreage will be important to the overall ability to meet climate-related goals. Connected to this, as Cape Cod towns work on addressing their housing needs, he said it will be important to focus on already disturbed areas that are underused or underdeveloped. The state's first climate report card and its implications for Cape Cod has also caught the attention of the Cape Cod Climate Change Collaborative. Quote, the Cape and Islands region is probably the most vulnerable area of Massachusetts to the devastating effects of climate change, said Dorothy Savarese, board president of the collaborative. The organization, she said, appreciates the sense of urgency the Healy Driscoll administration shows. Quote, we commend the transparent accountability of this comprehensive report to address not just reducing pollution from burning fossil fuels that are overheating our state, but also how coastal areas like ours can build resilience to dangers like rising sea levels, she said. She added that the collaborative is privileged to work with many organizations in the reason, region that are working on climate-related issues, including among them the Cape Cod Commission, the Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority, and the Cape Light Compact. Janet Williams, vice president of the collaborative, also highlighted the natural and working land section of the report card. The report, she said, quote, indicates that the state is more or less on track to meet the goal of conserving 28% of natural lands by 2030, close quote. Since Cape Cod only has 14% of natural lands, according to the APCC, she said, quote, this means it will be, on it will be incumbent on Cape Towns to strive to protect every square foot of undeveloped land to prevent our percentage from falling. The Cape, Cod's the Cape Cod Commission's Climate Action Plan highlights the need for towns to align protections for undeveloped land by adopting land use and wetland protection bylaws and regulations, she said, noting the Commission has already developed model bylaws for both zoning and wetlands, aimed at accomplishing this. Quote, the collaborative will work to develop a process for towns or citizen groups in towns to move, move ahead with this level of protection. That's a key goal of a local plan strategy and a really challenging one, Williams said. On the topic of resilience, she said, the Cape is doing pretty well with all 15 towns participating in the municipal vulnerability planning process. All towns have undergone vulnerability assessments, and some are now working on developing their action plans. Quote, on the Cape, towns are working together where watersheds encompass multiple municipal jurisdictions to develop joint plans, a strategy that will serve us well, Williams said. The efforts of the Pleasant Bay Alliance working with the towns of Brewster, Chatham, Harwich, and Orleans, she said, quote, is an ex excellent example of this strategically smart approach, close quote. She added that the state's newly re released Resilient Coasts initiatives will be an important source of regulatory and financial support for the fast-track development of resilience plans. Some of the key takeaways identified in the climate report card include transportation. Action is needed to achieve the rapid decarbonization required between 2025 and 2030. This includes ramping up electric vehicle adoption and charging inf infrastructure, increasing public transportation use, and alternatives to single occupancy vehicle travel. Power. Supply chain, inflationary, and commercial obstacles are delaying the deployment of clean energy, 
especially offshore wind. Significant interventions are needed to remain on track for 2030. The upcoming offshore wind procurement recommendations of the Commission on Clean Energy Infrastructure Siting and Permitting, further clean energy procurements, strategies to reduce electric load, and addressing interconnection issues will be central. And finally, natural and working lands. Interventions are needed to slow, stop, and reverse the loss of undeveloped lands, particularly forests, and its carbon storage and sequestration capacity. It will be crucial to balance competing land use needs, secure additional funding for conservation, and expand climate-oriented land management and restoration. And our final story today, entitled People in the News, Founding Member of Moody Blues and Wings Dead at 79. Denny Lane, a British singer, songwriter, and guitarist who performed in an early pop-oriented version of the Moody Blues and was later Paul McCartney's longtime sideman in the ex-Beatles solo band Wings, has died at age 79. Lane, inducted five years ago into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Moody Blues, died Tuesday in Naples, Florida. The cause was interstitial lung disease, according to an announcement on Lane's Instagram page by his wife, Elizabeth Hines. His death comes almost exactly 50 years after the release of McCartney's acclaimed Band on the Run album, on which Lane played guitar and provided backing vocals. On Tuesday, McCartney posted a tribute to Lane on Instagram, calling him a great talent with a fine sense of humor. In 1964, around the time he turned 20, he joined Ray Thomas and Mike Pinder in forming the Moody Blues and sang lead on the group's breakthrough hit, Go Now. But the Moody Blues struggled to match their initial success, and by 1967, Lane had left, replaced by Justin Hayward. The Moody Blues then turned to the ambitious, classically-influenced sounds of Nights in White Satin, and other songs. Lane worked as a solo artist and with such groups as Electric String Band and Ginger Baker's Air Force before he was brought into Wings by McCartney, whom he had known during his time with the Moody Blues. Founded in 1971, the year after the Beatles broke up, Wings went through various personnel changes over the following decade with Lane, McCartney, and McCartney's wife Linda. The band's number one singles, most of them written by McCartney, included My Love, Listen to What the Man Said, and the title track to Band on the Run. Lane helped write the million-selling Mull of Kintyre. So that's our news for today, December the 7th. 2023. I'm Daphne, happy to be reading the Cape Cod Times with you today and look forward to our coming again together in the future. Have a good weekend.